Good morning. Let's, um, let's pray again, shall we, together? Now, Father, we do bow our hearts now and pray that you would speak to us. Risen King Jesus, as we've thought about your ascension over recent weeks, we pray that you would send your spirit to our hearts today. Please would he come and work among us, as you have promised. Amen. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So begins the chapter of the Bible that we're looking at this morning, Romans chapter 8, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And we thought a bit about this verse a few weeks ago. We noted that it's a shocking verse. Shocking because the first few chapters in this letter to the Roman church make it so clear that in our original state, we stand guilty before God. Guilty of the rejection of God as God and rebelling against him in our hearts and in our outward lives. And yet, this verse summarizes a whole lot that has gone before it with a sweeping claim that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? How? Well, it has to do, Paul says, with the Spirit. The Spirit who Paul speaks of through these verses is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. He's described in the Bible as one with the Father and with the Son. He's a person, not an it. He is, for example, in verse 2, the Spirit who gives life. He desires things in verse 5. Verses 16 and 26 speak of the Spirit himself. And we've seen in most recent weeks of our series on the ascension of Jesus, something on the nature of God's Holy Spirit and the work which Jesus and the Father sent him to do. Today, in the last of our series, we're going to continue to learn about the Spirit's work. We're going to see three major things the Spirit does, and he alone does these things, and we need him to do them. And in fact, the only reason I'm going to carry on speaking this morning is because I trust that God might, through his mercy, use the Spirit, might, by his Spirit, use this time to carry on his work of beginning these things and bringing them about in our life. I don't know what kind of week you've had, uh, or morning even, as Sim said at the beginning. Maybe you've been looking forward to receiving from God's word all week. Maybe you're not even sure why you're here. Uh, If I'm honest, it's good to be real sometimes, isn't it? I've not had the best of weeks myself. And let's just give us all an opportunity before I continue to pause and ask God to work in our own hearts and lives through these next 20 minutes or so. Let's pray just quietly in your own heart. Ask God to speak to you and, and do this work by his spirit. Our Father, we, we cry out to you to, to work among us by your spirit today. We, you know the situations we come from. You know the things that are on our hearts. You know the sadness that we're feeling. You know uh, the loss of uh, loved ones or loved ones of friends. You know anxiety over uh, illness. You know anxiety over results. You know 
all the all that we face. Father, we pray that you'd work by your spirit among us today. Help us to fix our eyes now on you. Amen. So, we're going to begin taking a look at Romans chapter 8. We're first of all looking at verses 1 to 13, and we'll see that the spirit is the spirit who gives life. There's a word that um, comes up here quite often uh, in the Bibles you've got in front of you. It's on page 1134, by the way. 1134. There's a word that comes up that's translated here, sinful nature. It could also be translated flesh. We'll think a bit about that in a moment. So Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The words translated law is, uh, is the Greek word nomos. Usually, Paul uses nomos to refer to the Mosaic law covenant. That, that is the law which God gave to his people through Moses, the law which contains the Ten Commandments. However, in verse 2, Paul uses nomos not to refer to the Mosaic law, but it's more of a, a play on words. And it's a play on words that works very well in the Greek, doesn't work so well in English. But in verse 2, the meaning is more helpfully translated in English. Something like binding authority or power, dominion. So verses 2 to 3 would read like this. The binding authority or power of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the binding authority or power of sin and death. For what the law given by God through Moses was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So we've got these two contrasting authorities, two contrasting powers. What are they? What do they mean? Well, earlier on in chapter 7, Paul has explained that we're in, in our natural state imprisoned by the power of sin. It's like we're imprisoned by it. Those in, and those in Christ were imprisoned by the power of sin. But 8 verse 2 is the answer to this. The power of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the power of sin and death. If I might use a made-up word, we've been realm transferred. If you're in Christ Jesus, you've been realm transferred. It's kind of, this is better than an upgrade on airplane into first class. This is a complete realm transfer. The Spirit liberates those in Christ Jesus from the old realm of sin and death and brings them into his new realm of life and righteousness. That's why we can enjoy this, this banner of no condemnation because in Christ we've been set free from that realm of sin and death, ruled by sin, in which condemnation, death, is what we face. But sin's power has been broken Sin's ability to dictate the terms to us has been removed. We're no longer in that prison. And this isn't the work of the Spirit alone. God the Father is described here as doing this. 
And it's through Christ Jesus, the Son, that the power of of the Spirit who gives life has set us free. This is the united work of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. As verses 3 to 4 make clear, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. The language of condemnation being picked up here in chapter 8 was last found in chapter 5. There's a lot in, uh, this is a a packed book and this is a really packed chapter so we're going to kind of keep looking back a bit to earlier parts of Romans. Condemn means to pass judgment on. So a judge in a law court might condemn a convicted criminal to prison. Condemnation, chapter 5 tells us, is the resulting judgment that all humankind face as a result of sin. This condemnation is from God himself, and the sentence is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death, an eternally experienced punishment, forever lost, cut off from the presence and blessing of God. But chapter 5 didn't leave it there. Condemnation is a serious condition, but it need not be the end of the story. For chapter 5 also describes a group of people who are brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in Christ Jesus, given justification in place of condemnation. There's lots of long words for you. Given justification, they're declared right with God in place of being sentenced to death by God. And consequently, those who are in Christ Jesus receive eternal life in place of eternal death. And verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8 tell us how people who believe in, in Jesus Christ can be saved from the penalty that their sin demands. God has sent his son as a man in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is, he fully participated in our humanity. And the reason God would do such a radical thing, the reason God would do this thing, was to be a sin offering. God sent his son as a man so that he could be our substitute, so that he could suffer the offered in our place. He needed to become human so that he could take humanity's punishment. And that is exactly what happened. God condemned sin in the flesh. God passed judgment past the judgment that sin demands, pouring it out on his son. And Jesus came willingly to take this condemnation. This he did when he offered himself on the cross. God condemns his own son as he represented us and all our sin. Paul puts it elsewhere in uh, 2 Corinthians. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God sent his son as a human so that he could be condemned as a human, taking the full condemnation all who are in him deserve. So, those who are in Christ are no longer condemned. There is no condemnation. A simple question this morning. Has the Spirit of God given you this life? Has the Spirit of God set you free. It is not enough just to know about God the Father's plan to do something. It's not enough to know that God the Son came to earth and offered himself in our place on the cross. 
has risen from death and returned to the Father. The devil and, and evil spirits know that. Though the spirit who gives life must come to us individually and personally to set us free from the power of sin, to liberate us. He, is, he the spirit of God, must give us life. Otherwise, the Bible's description of us is dead in sin. The Spirit must take us out of the realm of sin and death and transfer us to the realm of the Spirit. And in this realm, we're in Christ and face no condemnation. If you don't yet know that the Spirit has worked this way in your life, then you need to cry out to God today and seek Him. We do that by saying sorry to God, sorry for failing to love Him, sorry for going against Him, and we turn in those ways and ask his forgiveness. Do speak to someone afterwards if you want to do that. Uh, we have a prayer team down here at the front who'd love to, to do that with you and pray with you. Or I'd love to speak to you, whoever. Just come and speak to one of us. If you do know this work of the Spirit of life, then maybe you'd like to take a moment to thank God again in your heart. It's incredible that God should do this for any of us. He is worthy of our everything. But as Paul continues, it becomes clear that our response of worship is not just about being amazed and thankful. I suspect most of us have at some point given a gift to someone. When I give a gift to someone, I kind of expect them to use it. I'm not just talking about the frying pans that I gave to Joe once as a very generous gift. We recently bought an experience day for one of our brothers. We spent a long time choosing an experience at a racetrack. He loves cars. And when you give a gift like that, you want the person to have the joy of using it. Maybe there are some parallels with this to our response of worship, to the gift of life and freedom that the Spirit of God gives us. You see, he doesn't just want us to stare at the envelope the package in which we were told about the experience. He doesn't just want us to stare at verses like these in the Bible. Even if as we stare, we sing songs of thanks and pray great prayers of praise. No, he wants us to live the gift. He wants us to experience the life that he's given us by setting us free from the power of sin. This is what Paul develops from verses 5 to 13 after introducing in verse 4 the idea of living according to the Spirit as opposed to living according to the flesh. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. It is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. There's so much that could be said about these verses and they pick up big themes from earlier parts of the letter, especially in uh, chapter 6. But for now, let's just summarize the call to live out the life that we've been set free for. Having been set free from the power of sin by the power of the Spirit who gives life, we're called to stop living under sin's power, sin's rule. This is very much a battle Elsewhere in the New Testament, the language of war is used, the flesh waging war against the spirits. It's not easy, but it is possible. We're not talking about sinless perfection, this side of the return of Jesus. That's unrealistic and unbiblical. But we are called to progressively overcome the sin that we discover in our lives. Having been set free from sin's power, We're able to say no. Sometimes we find that very hard to believe. Our experience of our own weakness might cause us to give up. To doubt that I can ever overcome those thoughts. That reaction. That sense of yet again repeating my failure. But if the Spirit of God lives in us, verse 9, we are not in the realm of the flesh but are in the realm of the Spirit. And the realm of the Spirit is a realm of life and peace and freedom, a realm of power to overcome. If you're wrestling with this battle against sin in your life, you might find it helpful to reflect on these verses slowly later on, somewhere quiet. Turn them into a prayer, a prayer of repentance and a prayer of asking for the Spirit's help. And I suspect you might find chapter 6 of Romans very helpful too. Maybe some of us aren't wrestling with this battle enough. We've become complacent. We've become satisfied in our basic level of moral improvement. And if we're in that group, then we too need to cry out for the Spirit's help. So that by the Spirit, we might put to death the rottenness of our flesh and live. One of the things uh, that struck uh, me and uh, I know at least a couple of others in our, our week of our 10 days of prayer was uh, the beatitude where Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We talk about many things we need these days, but how much do we hunger and thirst for righteousness, for living according to God, living in ways that are pleasing to him? Someone has written, to walk according to the flesh is to have one's life determined and directed by the values of this world, of the world in rebellion against God. It is a lifestyle that is purely human in its orientation. To walk according to the spirit, on the other hand, is to live under the control and according to the values of the new age, created and dominated by God's spirit as his gift. So the spirit who gives life is the first thing and that we see in these verses, we won't spend quite as long on the other two. Uh, in verses 14 to 17, we see the Spirit who gives sonship. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God or sons of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. 
Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I'd like you to imagine two situations. Imagine uh, that uh, like Sarah, you're going to an interview for a job. And uh, you're walking into that situation. And imagine another situation, you're going for a meal with someone you love, someone who loves you, be that a parent, a sibling, a friend, whoever. Think about the different ways you approach those two situations, the interview where you're having to prove yourself, the meal where you know you're loved. And this is something like the difference Paul is getting at here, the difference between a slave and a son. The difference between relating to God as one who approaches cautiously, uncertain of their position. Will their service be enough to be accepted? Or will I face condemnation? And one who approaches as a beloved son, a child approaching their father with absolute confidence that they are accepted and loved because they are a son. And not just any son. You see, God already has a son. We've already thought about him in verse 3. God sent his son. And in verse 29, God's purpose is said to be to conform a people to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And so our adoption to sonship that that Paul speaks of here is astonishingly about somehow sharing the sonship of Jesus. The adoption that Paul speaks of is about sharing the sonship of Jesus. Take a look sometime at the prayer of Jesus recorded in chapter 17 of John's Gospel. And you'll see the heart of the son, that he wants to share his relationship he has with his father, that he's enjoyed before the creation. He wants to share this relationship with all those who believe in him. And this is the staggering reality of the believer's adoption. As in our present day culture, an adopted child had all the legal rights and privileges that would ordinarily be given Uh, to a natural child given to them. And so we can even call the almighty, sovereign God, who is holy, 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 we can even call this God Father. I'm well aware that for some, the concept of fatherhood is distorted, whether that's through absence, death, abuse, illness or or any other reason. For some, the concept of a father doesn't conjure up the entirely positive or, or happy memories. But this relationship, the relationship that we're brought into with God that is being described here, is one of deep intimacy, of cherished love, of wholesome delight. Abba is an Aramaic term which Jesus himself used in addressing his father. That's the intimacy. I remember feeling uh, very spiritually dry on one occasion. Not that I've only ever felt that once. But on this occasion, 
I think I must have forced myself to read the Bible. And I read John's Gospel. I do love John's Gospel, so if I'm going to force myself to read the Bible, that's a good place to start. And I read these words of Jesus in chapter 20 of John's Gospel, and they hit me. Jesus had just made himself known to Mary outside his tomb where he'd been buried after he was crucified. Mary's amazed, understandably, because he's alive. Jesus said to her, Go to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And I don't think I'd noticed it before, but now I couldn't see it more clearly. Jesus calls his disciples my brothers. And he calls his father their father. Go to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father. To my God and your God. By the Spirit, are you crying, Abba, Father, today? By the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Notice the Spirit's, the Holy Spirit's particular role here in making us aware that we are God's children. There's more going on here than just being made children. There's the being made aware that we are God's children. Our adoption by God is not just a truth, but a truth to be felt. Our sharing in the sonship of Jesus is something that we experience emotionally as well as something to acknowledge academically. Verse 17 makes explicit something which is included in God adopting us as sons. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We are God's children now. We are adopted in the Son now. But we are yet to experience the fullness of that adoption. There is a now and a not yet dimension. So the language of inheritance is a helpful way of thinking about this. We are heirs. We stand to receive something which we are not yet in receipt of. We stand to receive the fullness of what God has promised to his people. And this is a hope to hold on to and to look forward to. Though we should be aware that just as we are united with Christ as sons of God and co-heirs, we are also united with him in his path to glory, which is a path of suffering. I uh, found a profound sense of perspective entering the persecuted church cell in our uh, prayer room the other week. Um, If you don't know what that was, then come and ask me about it or someone else who was there. We had this room where uh, names of of people in prison for following Jesus were just on the floor. Fairly bare, empty room. But it certainly gave me perspective going in there and just thinking about that. And maybe we won't be imprisoned for following Jesus. But you might not get as far as others in your career. You might face mockery in the classroom or or in your social circles. You might be ridiculed by colleagues or avoided by neighbours. You might even be rejected by family members. For some people, uh, perhaps temporarily living in the UK, the prospects 
of sharing in Christ's suffering is extremely real on returning to their home countries. We therefore need the Spirit to do the third thing that he does that we're thinking about this morning. The Spirit gives life, the Spirit gives sonship, and the Spirit gives hope, verses 17 to 27. Now if we are children, verse 17, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, We wait for it patiently. And so the future of the whole of creation is linked with God's purposes for his people. Those he has made his children, sons of God. Here the future glory and the fullness of our adoption is developed further. They'll be groaning now. And don't we know that? Don't we know that? In this broken world as we look at the news, as we visit dying relatives, as we feel the pain of broken relationships, don't we know that there's groaning now? But there's hope. The Spirit gives us hope. We might also notice uh, in passing, just uh, seeing as Sarah shared about her environmental um, work, we might notice in passing how these verses that suggest that God is concerned about the creation. We often think of how God's plan of redemption reaches us, and rightly so, but I suspect we less often think about how God's plan of redemption extends beyond us to the wider creation. And it could be argued, if God is concerned to liberate and renew the creation, then his children ought to care about it now. I wonder, how does your understanding of the gospel shape the way you use the earth's resources, for example. Maybe when you next sort out your recycling, you could remember God's vast plan of redemption, which stretches to include creation. Your recycling is a tiny glimpse of God's plan to liberate creation from decay. There's a thought. We're going to finish now, though, and and just try and keep thinking about these things in response, and we're going to sing a, a few songs, but the first one really is trying to celebrate um, the grace of God in saving us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. None of us deserve this amazing work of God by his Spirit. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We might add, was dead, but now I live. And the version that we're singing has this great chorus celebrating that my chains are gone. I've been set free. 
My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. Let's hold on to those words and celebrate together. And we're also going to celebrate our adoption as a song later.